Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be joined uh, by Melissa Griffith back again. So it's great to have you back on the show. Melissa, how are you? I'm doing well. Can't believe summer is almost over, but yeah, I can live with it. Yeah. Yeah, fall, early fall is nice. You know, early fall is nice. What else is nice, though, is getting uh, guests back on the show and guests back on the show who we really enjoyed talking to. And uh, Dr. Terry Gibbons is one of those guests, and we're so fortunate as to have Terry on the show. So, Terry, welcome back to Trending in Education. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be back here with you guys. Yeah, and uh, just your third appearance, you get a refrigerator magnet. So uh, <laughs> so just keep that in Whoa. the back of your mind. So, uh, I'm, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I must have missed my magnet. Your, 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 your staff, Melissa, your staff. We'll, we'll, we'll figure, that out, figure that out separately. But, uh, but we had, uh, for those of you who haven't heard our episode, our, our conversation with Terry uh, from a few months back, it was really, really fascinating. Got a lot of positive feedback from our listeners about it. Terry's writing a book uh, and developing a curriculum and some, some content around a concept called radical empathy. And we walked through the six main uh, tenets of that framework with Terry on our previous show. At the time, we were talking a lot about George Floyd, where that was uh, relatively recent news at that point. And now, not surprisingly, but sadly, we are seeing more news now around another name, in this case, Jacob Blake and unrest around that. So that is, that's one area that we definitely want to get into with Terry. But before we get into that, we just wanted to get a read on higher education just in general, where Terry does a, a podcast about higher ed leadership and developing higher ed leadership and understanding what's going on in the, the broader higher ed space. And it being early fall, people are thinking about back to school. Folks are starting to head back to campus or not. There are also, there's a lot of folks, faculty, who are being forced to teach online or being forced to teach in person. Just a very crazy time. And as someone who has her ear to the ground on a lot of this stuff, Terry, we'd love to get maybe just some initial thoughts from you on where are, where are people's heads at? What's the educational ecosystem look like in higher ed in the U.S.? Any high-level thoughts uh, you want to begin with? And then we'll, we'll kind of proceed from there. Absolutely. We actually do both our podcast and a monthly webinar at the Center for Higher Education Leadership. Mm -hmm. And I made sure we did something on wellness at the end of July. Right. <laughs> and, and then we just did a webinar last week on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we, we were, were kind of focusing on wellness because I'm just seeing so much anxiety out there amongst faculty, amongst students, amongst parents. I'm a parent. Mm -hmm. I have my own anxiety about my son who's just headed off to school in Portland. Yeah. And, and, but also because we're in this situation, unfortunately, on top of everything else, the pandemic, the, mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter protests, schools are going back and forth. Yeah. So you've had Notre Dame that opened and then had to close more, more recently. Temple University that yep. opened and then closed. And, and then University of Alabama has a really high number of cases. Like per capita, maybe not so high, but yeah. it's still a lot of uh, these numbers we're seeing coming in. And I'm sure by the time this airs, we'll have seen even more. Yep. And so the, the reality is if, if you're going to have face-to-face -face or hybrid, you're going to see numbers. Yep. And for the faculty, this is hard because they worry about themselves, their, what kind of PPE do they have if they're face-to-face, right. -face, it's the setup. And, and then if they're online, I mean, I'm seeing my you know, friends dealing with technology. I know, Melissa, you're interested in this te technology side of it. And the technology, it just in and of itself is a whole big issue. What are, what are faculty using? How is right. it working? And what, what I'm seeing, even at the big 
research one institutions is that they're kind of on their own in terms of how they're they're choosing their their technology and, yep. and tools and all of that and my experience being at a big institutions is we don't have a lot of instruction we don't even have instructional designers yep. on staff yep. Yep. so it's yep. actually it's kind of the mid-level institutions that have institutional designers that are working with faculty and and i'm not saying they aren't working with faculty at the bigger institutions they have workshops and trainings sure. and so on but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of figuring figuring out how to take your course from face-to-face to online, a lot of them are just managing this themselves and running into problems. I'm part of at least two Facebook groups. The one is Pandemic Pedagogy, uh, and the other is, I forget, it's higher ed something or other, but yeah. uh, it's all about teaching and learning. And so they're they're actually getting together and helping themselves and, and venting yeah. and talking about their anxieties and and so on. And so we we're providing some fora for that as well, mm-hmm. uh, but also trying to buy, really provide some strategies for how to deal with the stress and strain of yeah. the current environment. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the social emotional, the, the whole student orientation. It's almost like a whole teacher, a whole faculty uh, orientation is, is really critical mm-hmm. right now. So it's great to hear that you're providing those types of services where it's not just how do I deliver my curriculum, it's also how do I make sure that I'm okay and I'm emotionally present and I, I actually can engage in some empathy. And we talked about the importance of being able to signal that you can be vulnerable and you can share some of your own concerns with your students, but that's always scary too. So there's a, a lot afoot. And then, and then layered on top of that, the Black Lives Matter and the public health concerns. It's a very stressful year to the point that some folks are even questioning, should I go back to school this year, or should I actually take the year as a, a gap year and, and or just go entirely online? Do you have any thoughts on that, Terry? Yeah, absolutely. I just saw a recent article that was talking about the numbers in terms of students going on gap years. And for even for Harvard, like 20% of their students are, are taking a gap year. And yeah. I have a friend whose daughter, she was admitted to USC and decided to take a gap year. Uh, so I think they're seeing a pretty high percentage. Part of the reason for that, if you think about these you know, bigger institutions, which you normally, you know, hey, you got into this amazing school. Right. You know, the, the reason they're going there and paying the big money is they want that full experience. Mm-hmm. If you're going to a Cal State where, you know, most of them were, were going to be online anyway, it's right. like you're, you're not paying a huge amount. It, it, being online isn't that big a deal. And, and some students go online anyway for right. those kinds of institutions. So, mm-hmm. but it's the, it's the experience of, of, and the networking of being at yeah. Harvard and U- right. USC, yeah. you know, yeah. Notre Dame. Or even, even, even Alabama yeah. gets you into like the sports program and just the campus culture, campus life is part of why people go. And then if they know it's going to be so upside down for the year, folks are genuinely questioning whether it makes sense to well, do it this year. Expertise is not an online. Right. <laughs> why would I go to a school whose expertise is not online and mm-hmm. I don't get all of these added benefits? So yes, mm-hmm. you're seeing a lot of gap year. The community colleges in my area are seeing a lot of influx. And actually, the, the San Jose State, their numbers are up for in-state mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. in particular. So we were expecting overall this enrollment decline, but it's more complicated than that. Right. You're going to see a de- enrollment decline for certain types of institutions. And here we can bring in the small private liberal arts colleges, because yeah. I think that's where you're going to see the, the enrollment decline, because right. their specialization is in 
face-to-face residential education. And even if they don't have the sports, it's still their specialization is to have those kids there. Just real real quick, Terry, are they called SPLACs? Yes, I think we can coin that. Splacks. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm not endorsing this. I don't think it's catching I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Melissa, please take the floor. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not endorsing this. I am I am curious though, because um it this for me, I still don't know whether this pandemic is the new normal. So the gap years, what yes. are these colleges doing to think about this, right? Because beyond the gap year, beyond your enrollment decline, you're going to have to change or die pretty much, right? So any... Well, any, especially um, for the small privates, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know that's something you, you spend time thinking about yes. and working with. So, so any thoughts yeah, on that? Well, this is my big push right now for this... Okay, Melissa, I won't use SPLAC. (laughs) For the small private liberal arts colleges, what they are facing is a situation where it's it's evolve or die. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what we're focusing on is how can we maintain the distinctiveness of the small private liberal arts college while allowing them to take advantage of innovation, technology, finding ways to reduce tuition because right one of the big issues is cost and giving students what they want, which is the, the small classes, the, the getting to know people. I mean, my own son is, is at a small college up in uh, Portland, Oregon, which luckily he's not too close to the protests and so on. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, I, I knew what he wanted going in. He wanted that close-knit community, mm-hmm. et cetera. I'm sure we can maintain that, but what it's going to take is c- consolidation. Almost mm-hmm. every industry in this country has gone through consolidation, mm-hmm. except for higher ed. Mm-hmm. Except that it is happening in higher ed. It's just not as, as visible. So mm-hmm. at the higher end, you, uh, or the larger scale institutions, you have Southern New Hampshire, you have Arizona State, which are, are taking the lead. And mm-hmm. Purdue is right there with them as well. Mm-hmm. But at the small private colleges, we, we, we haven't had a, an institution jump forward and say, okay, we're going to develop alliances. We're gonna, I mean, there are onesies and twos, or, you know, twosies, threesies. There are some consolidations that are happening, and, it, and actually it tends to be at, you know, like the, the nonprofit, but more on the closer to the for-profit type model. Yep. Um, so you can think Western Governors University has mm-hmm. some specializations in teaching and so on, and you have a national university. But really what I think what we need to see is the the institutions that are you know the the rock of their community <laughs> you have these small college towns mm-hmm. that have these liberal arts colleges that are that's that's the cornerstone of their community and we cannot mm-hmm. afford to lose them for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. number one is because they are an engine for their community and there's right. their city or town but number two, because I think they're an important component of this, the broader system where there are students like my son who needs mm-hmm. that kind of institution to go to. Mm-hmm. And we need to make it more cost effective and we need to make it more innovative. And right. lots of them are taking innovative approaches. Mm-hmm. But I really think consolidations of five to 10 alliances between five to 10 of these institutions mm-hmm. will allow them to maintain their distinctiveness, but put some of this online, mm-hmm. You know, be more flexible, allow students to take courses across all of the institutions. Yeah. Part of the problem for some of these institutions is they're only offering a few degree programs right, and, right. and they're stretched too thin. Mm-hmm. So imagine if you could focus on your strengths 
And then if a student just changed their mind and decided they didn't want a business degree, they could go and you know, keep the credits they have right. and go change their major to one of your partner institutions. And there's, there's the agreements across those organizations, those institutions so that they can easily switch. Right. And it, it's going to take some work. Accreditation is an issue, creating agreements across institutions so that the students' credits transfer right. easily. Cross honor, yeah, yeah. Yes. So there, there's these different things we can do that will allow these institutions to survive. But this was happening before mm -hmm. COVID. This is not, all COVID is doing is shifting it from being five years to a year. Right, right. <laughs> or, you know, we're going to know if these institutions can survive. Right. So, so Terry, in the past, though, it seemed to me, right, uh, you're much more in, in the higher ed space than I am. It seemed to me that higher ed has been less willing to yes. adopt the technology and to adopt these yes. innovations. Are you seeing now that with the crisis and the pandemic that they are far more willing to look at technologies? And Absolutely. Are, are they too late to the game though, or do you think they're going to be able to, to get involved at this point? That's a good question. They are late to the game for sure. I freely admit I was one of those administrators back in the early 2000s who was very skeptical about tech and, and mm -hmm. innovation. And because when I was a vice provost for undergraduate curriculum, I, I wasn't thinking about these mm -hmm. things. It's like, oh, okay, clickers, we have our LMS. I didn't even know much about our student information system. We had an internal one at, at UT, yeah, yeah. our own. And so what changed for me is about seven years ago, I started paying attention. I'm like, wait a second, there's all these innovations happening. There's all these companies, Silicon Valley. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I wanted to get back to, I was at you know, Austin, Texas. I wanted to get back to Silicon Valley because I really was interested in what was going on in the ed tech sector. So mm -hmm. I had to spend years going to the conferences. ASU, yeah. GSV is a big one. Right. Um, and paying attention to all this stuff and, and really getting a handle on what's going on around technology. And I was realizing my colleagues aren't at these meetings. Right. You know, as a provost, yeah. you know, I wasn't seeing my colleagues at these mm -hmm, meetings and mm -hmm. I would talk to the people at Salesforce. And so they did start doing, like we did a, an yeah. event where I got to meet some of the folks at Salesforce that was just for provosts from California. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of event I, that really you know, helped open my eyes to, to the opportunities and innovation and so on. But no, higher ed is, is not up to speed on all this. And that's why I created the Center for Higher Education Leadership, partly is because I realized we don't have a good mechanism in place for leaders to learn all this stuff. They need right. to know. I mean, I'm a political scientist. Back when H1N1 flu came around and, you know, the, the provost said, Terry, you're in charge of the task force. I was like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a yeah. political scientist. <laughs> 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 I, I, I can do research on the immigration and so on. But, yeah. you know, when you be, go from being a faculty yeah. member to an administrator, all of a mm. sudden, guess what? You're a manager. You're in charge yeah. of all these things. Know so what's going on in terms of innovation. And mm -hmm. so, Melissa, to come back to yeah. answer your question, yeah, we're almost too late to the game. Yeah. I think we can recover, but it's going to take being bold and innovative. And right now, administrators are being forced into, I mean, okay, something people probably don't know, but a lot of faculty don't even use their LMSs on their campuses. You know, they, right, they, right. Not that a, does not surprise me. It's not a requirement. <laughs> right. So the faculty are being pressured and pushed into using technology yeah. that they might not, even at the high school level. I mean, right, right. You know, my son is, is in high school and, and we were complaining in the spring that sometimes the, the his teachers weren't posting stuff on Canvas. And so we couldn't yeah. know what he was missing and so on. Right, right. And so now they are, right? Mm -hmm. So what's happened in the space of six months or so is faculty 
are also being pushed to to use the technology mm-hmm. and and you know and it like i said before i mean it is causing some stress and strain because all yeah. of a sudden people who might have been not so into technology are having to use it and understand mm-hmm. it and work with students with it and some of the students don't know the technology right i mean we, we just assume students are these digital natives right but they yeah. aren't they a lot of them have never used an lms yeah i mean it's just like students come to college they've never seen a syllabus before right right um, and I'm gonna the hot take here. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there. Some of these LMSs aren't that great uh, in yeah. terms of their user experience and their technology. Where sure these digital natives, if it was on TikTok or if it was on something, if it was Fortnite, they'd be right out of it. But instead, right. it's this LMS that's a completely different model, and it's not really meeting them where it, they yes. are. You know, most of the LMSs out there are still dated, right? Mm-hmm. They were developed in the early 2000s and, and yeah. they haven't had they haven't had a reason to mm-hmm. improve because people are buying them without actually utilizing them. And, and, the that's also, yeah, and, then, and then once they have it, it's like all of us frequently you think I figure it out once every 20 years, maybe or or whatever. And I think we're all coming to terms with the fact whether you're an educator, whether you're just trying to stay, stay relevant in your career that you're going to have to refresh your knowledge of tools and your digital skill set regularly. That's a lifelong task for the rest of the world. You either sign on for it or you're eventually, your livelihood will be at risk if you're not able to kind of pivot in this direction. And we're seeing a lot of that already where there are educators who need help just to manage this move. Mm-hmm. And that's part of, I, I imagine, what where your center is providing some of that. And then yep. that, that's for the, the faculty themselves, but then also your point about administrators is even tougher because then without any training, real formal training about this, suddenly they have to make decisions about technology, about diversity, about public health. Mm -hmm. And many of them are sharp people with a lot of experience. Some folks are doing a great job, but, but it's hard. And without feeling like you're supported, getting back to the, the, I get social emotional baby, (laughs) you know, but uh, the other thing I've heard a lot about lately is just the importance of, Grace, giving yes. people room to to feel what they're feeling, almost just a moment of pause to allow for that. That does remind me a little bit of some of the, the stuff from Radical Empathy. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about, about that aspect of things? Yeah, because my Radical Empathy approach is, is focused to a certain extent on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it's also just in general. We need mm-hmm. to give ourselves, look inside well, with this willingness to be vulnerable and say, I mean, frankly, just if you think about leadership, leaders who are willing to be vulnerable and say, I don't understand this and I'm having a hard time with it. It's so funny. I, I mean, I, I sent a note to the, to the school principal and said, I understand you guys are struggling with this. Sometimes just sending a note and saying, we're struggling too. Yeah. Just acknowledge. Mm-hmm. And people just want acknowledgement that mm-hmm. this is hard for all of us. We're doing our best. Here's, you know, here's, here's what we think we can do. And I think a lot of time leaders are afraid to do that because they're afraid of, of showing weakness. It's yeah. not showing weakness. Actually, it's showing strength if you're willing to say, I don't know. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure how we're going to get through this right. <laughs> because we're all feeling that way, right? right? You talk about what you can do, right? right? So it's this willingness to being vulnerable under and understanding yourself is a, is a second step because if you understand yourself, you understand what you can offer. And for right. example, I know that I as a leader, have I can offer an ear. I can listen. 
-hmm. I can help you work through a problem. And actually Mm -hmm. that's what people, I think when I mentor people and so on, that's what they appreciate. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have an answer, but I can help you work through a problem because I, I may have experience but it's, it's understanding what my strengths are as a leader that is also important. And then it's, it's being willing to, to be open to others and listen and mm-hmm. help them understand and work through their issues and problems, but also openness to different cultures and, mm-hmm. and different approaches. And that's something, if you look at the teaching side of it, right, and the transition that faculty are making, that's a big part of it, right? It's being open to what your students need. It's having empathy for your students. Yeah. And then, you know, the radical component of it is taking action, right? right okay, right. so my, I know my students are struggling. I got a really nice email from one of my son's uh, teachers this morning. He said, oh yeah, I'm keeping the, the mental health component of my students at the forefront this right. semester because right, right. I know rather than just saying, okay, you have to get this assignment done now and mm-hmm. that, that next, you know, we have to keep the in front of mind that these students are going through a lot of stress and strain too. You know, right. They're having to work from home. They're having to figure mm-hmm. out technology. Their their parents are, are stressed out and either working from home or having to go out and they may be essential workers. There's so much complexity to the situation. And so yeah. we have to have empathy and we have to practice empathy. It, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's something we have to practice, but the, the taking action component is partially dependent on understanding your own strengths. Right and weaknesses. Yeah, 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 for sure. And then the other thing that we were talking a bit about is dealing with uncertainty and variability is the other Mm -hmm. big component where I think it'd be different if there was a national policy where Mm -hmm. everyone would be doing the same thing regardless of the campus and regardless of where you are, whether it's public, private, whatever, whatever state you're in, it would all be the same, small, Mm -hmm. large, all the same. But instead, what we're seeing is a a really piecemeal approach where each chancellor, each provost, each administrator, university president is making decisions on her own. Maybe they're consulting experts, maybe they're not. And they're making the best decision that they can make at a particular point in time. And then as the old statement goes, the military statement, all the best plans don't survive first contact with the enemy. So the fall happens. And regardless of what you thought you were gonna do, University of Alabama, 1,200 cases suddenly pop up. What do you do then? Any thoughts on that, just on how varied it is and how to be a leader and how to navigate this really varied ecosystem that we're in? And then I imagine it's also hard for for parents and students on the other side to say, like, what are we even going into in the fall? So so any thoughts about just how topsy-turvy and hard to plan for things are? Well, I I was going to say the number one thing is communicate, communicate, communicate. But Mm -hmm. actually, you have to be careful about that, too, because I was hearing some complaints from some, you know, some faculty and parents are like, I keep getting these emails and it's too much. So you have to find a balance. I had actually gotten to this really interesting discussion on on Twitter last week. One of my colleagues was saying, I just want to know what is the threshold? When are they going to say they're they're face to face now? But what is the threshold? And actually, that's not just the case with her. I've seen this in the articles about these in, or institutions that are going back and forth. Tell me what the threshold is. Yeah. What is going to get you to go from being face-to-face to online? Mm-hmm. And so being able to have a set of guidelines and, you know, so I was going to say, I monitor my son's college's uh, mm-hmm. website that says what, you know, what ha- when they have new cases, they're, they're every day, they update how many cases they have. They have yeah. very few, luckily, yeah. knock on wood. But, but basically the, the, the data is going to get out. So have yeah, it easily yeah. accessible, 
have a, a and even for my son's college, I need to remind them, put a, a very prominent link on your website that says, here's a link to our COVID data because mm -hmm. parents and media are going to ask for it and you right. have to give it out. You can't hide it. So right. transparency, I guess. So yeah. rather than communication, I would say transparency is critical. Mm -hmm. Make it easy for people to find the data. I know this is changing, but if you have a policy in place, say what it is. Right. And then but also say it's subject to change. I mean, that's sure. what I tell my friends. If I were a, a provost right now, if I had an institution larger than 5,000 students, I would not go face-to-face. -face. Yeah. That, that would be my yeah. cutoff. Mm -hmm. But if I did go face-to-face, because -face, let's say my board of trustees, which is happening in some cases, board sure. of regents, board of trustees are saying no, you or, or even governors right. you know, are saying you're not going to get funding unless you yeah. um, go face-to-face, -face, um, you know, I would say, okay, then here's my criteria for when right. we would have to switch mm -hmm. and or we're just not going to switch and we're going to put up with however many cases we get we'll deal with it yeah. and um, that one's that's probably the toughest angle it, it seems like if you're not prepared to go online you're in trouble because you, you, you almost have to build in the idea that you may go online I, yeah, otherwise I you're not you're, accounting for that possibility you if, know? if you, you're not prepared to go online you're delusional at this point right because you don't mm -hmm. know what you don't know terry you touched on an interesting point that uh, i don't know how much we want to get into it but i'll throw it out there right there is not a coordinated national level yes. and and so from the president down to the governors to this it's not right and so i imagine as universities it's really hard to decide what's right for you and then mm -hmm. as parents or even I think if I was a parent, I would be concerned at this point mm -hmm. that my kid that goes to University of Alabama has to go back to school, but my kid that is going to school in Portland is not, right? The situation is the same. So what is making their response different? How much of this do you think though should be on the government to, to put in place versus actually a coordinated effort again by universities, uh, which is what we're talking about? Well, I would love to see more guidance. And that's all it can be, because yeah. yeah. we have to keep in mind that we do yeah. have state systems, yeah. private, you know, so I think it's appropriate. Unfortunately, it didn't come out till more recently, but Governor yeah. Newsom here came out with some clear guidelines. Mm -hmm. yeah. He came out with initial guidelines that had to be updated um, to be more clear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we've struggled with this yeah. a little bit in California. Right, right. Oregon came out with pretty clear guidelines, but the University of Oregon didn't make the decision to go online until this last few days mm -hmm. because they don't start until um, the end of September. Mm -hmm. So most of the big publics yeah. in Oregon are online. Right. Um, I, actually, I don't think I've heard of an, a, an institution in Oregon that's big that is not online. And, the, and this is just because I'm on the West Coast. Yeah. But in terms of what I'm seeing across the country, I actually put a, a note on Facebook. I have a lot of friends who are obviously faculty mm -hmm. and so on. I said, tell me the stories where this is working because all I'm hearing is the, the negative stories. Mm. And so the problem is that if everything's going fine, you're not going to, you know, right. you're not going to, the media is not going to come. Yeah. We're not gonna, right. But yeah, I'm still kind of waiting to see what mm -hmm. are we seeing situations where it's working. So University yeah. of Illinois, apparently they have a good testing program. They have their saliva test. That seems to be yeah. one of the ones that's working, but that's another problem, right? The, yeah. Even the testing protocols and what sure. test you're that using difference. isn't the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I know several, University of no, Arizona State, I believe is the one that was testing sewage. So there's all these different ways that, that schools are approaching it. So yeah. I think even if we did have 
all that the federal government could do is provide guidance and here right. are some options. Um, yeah. I wish they were putting money into things like testing sewage, sure. like doing some of these, uh, making sure everybody gets the saliva test because it's yeah, yeah. fast. Those are the kinds of things the government could be doing. And uh, I think even state level governments could be doing, but they're struggling because they have to have a balanced budget and right. they're, they're yeah. getting hit hard. Mm -hmm. So ideally what we would see is money coming from the federal government and state governments to help these institutions and by providing that money, you say, okay, here's what you have to do with it, which is do this kind of testing, yeah. help faculty get online. And, and we did have these grants that came from the federal government, but it wasn't nearly enough to mm -hmm. cover the cost. And it's interesting because you see all these tuition the complaints about tuition, it's like, well, actually what's happening right now, even if they're going online, it's costing institutions more to teach you. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. And they still have the infrastructure. Okay, yes, you can't go use a climbing wall, but it's still right. there. And right, they have right. to pay, you know, and, you know, anyway, so I could go yeah. on and on with the tall tuition thing. But ideally, yes, we would have more guidance coming from the federal level and from the state level. And and I'm not sure what's happening. It, it would be, in, actually, we're going to have so much research to do after the system. Oh, my yeah. God. Oh man! I mean, falling, you know. I mean, like catch your if you're tired, if you're exhausted now, and you're overwhelmed now, just once <laughs> September hits, well, this is gonna go out in September. So, in the midst of when you're listening to this, uh, you know more than we do because we're at the we're at the yes. very end of August when we're recording this. But uh, but it's gonna get crazy. And as if this were not enough, the other thing that we wanted to touch on briefly is. Uh, Meanwhile, from the other side of the universe, you got your Googles and your Amazons and your Starbucks. Google in particular is getting a lot of buzz now for launching an internship program that doesn't necessarily require an undergraduate degree for job placement, trying to get the same audience who is shook by the complexities around how do I navigate higher ed? What's the return of my investment? Google, which is very similar to what Amazon has announced and what other big organizations, big corporations are announcing, is they're getting into the game a bit around the education to employment pipeline. Melissa, I know this is something uh, you always uh, want to bring up. We'd love to get your perspective, Terry, beginning with you, and then Melissa, any thoughts you might have on uh, how that might fit into the equation? Yeah, so we shared the story about Google is offering courses that they would consider basically as what you need to do to, to take certain jobs and to work for them mm -hmm. and potentially for other employers. And what's interesting to me is it immediately made me think of my sister who, uh, when she was in high school back in the seventies, had they had a co-op program at our high school where she was able to go to school, but also work at IBM. Well, she ended up having an over 30 year career at IBM, got into management and she didn't have to go to college to do that mm -hmm. and very successful. And so I think it's kind of a back to the future kind of thing where there was a time when you did a professional development, we would call it now, where you actually took courses when you were, or, or learned how to do the job before mm -hmm. you actually yeah. started the job. Right. You know, and so a lot of companies, when they were cutting costs and when they were going through consolidation, tech industry and all of that, they, they stopped doing all that professional development. They wanted people to come in ready to go. And now they're realizing even if they've got a college degree, they aren't ready to go. I have a student who you know, went to work for SurveyMonkey and they had him do a 10-week program to learn all, you know, basically how to be an employee. Right. And they paid for it as long as he you know, stayed with SurveyMonkey. Yeah. Um, and so that's the, that's a model that I think we're going to see a lot more is mm -hmm. that 
companies are going to say, okay, even if you have a four-year degree, we want to train you before you start officially start the job. And it's one of the complaints of really, and I think why Google is saying, look, we might as well just train these people on what we want them to do. And they'll learn some of this other stuff. If you believe in a liberal arts education where you learn about civics and how to write and all these Mm -hmm. things, college isn't going away. I mean, I see so many colleges going away because of Google. It's like, no, it's the exact same reason I was saying why students are taking a gap year, right? Right. And and actually there's a lot of programs that are popping up like that Google program now for students who are taking a gap year. And actually, and that's the German model. In Germany, you do an internship or, or uh, an apprenticeship and you go to college right right yeah <laughs> you know so they don't have to be mutually exclusive right mm-hmm. i mean it's really all of the above and you can make the argument what, what google's doing is what is all these uh, for-profit and, and devry things like that that's what they've already been doing right, right they've been right. training people yeah. how to you know there's there's programs for people who want to be welders or electricians right. it's not that much different than mm-hmm. than that but uh, Melissa, please jump in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, a lot of what you said, I, I absolutely agree. For me, I think when I saw Google's announcement on it, I thought, yeah, interested, not surprised, and they're going into it. Google's looking for a cheaper pipeline into their mm-hmm. program. So that makes a ton of sense. To what I find interested about all these companies, like when Amazon jumped into it or, or Starbucks, what I find really interested is I hope they're getting the, the credentials needed to teach in a structured way from education, because in some some respect, Google is banking on Google's brand. Mm-hmm. If I trained an engineer, other companies will want that engineer. Mm-hmm. But we have no knowledge right now how good Google is as an educator, right? And mm-hmm. so right. they're actually taking a, a big gamble there. For what it's worth, I support Google. I believe they can do this. Mm-hmm. I do agree with your point wholeheartedly, though. People miss a lot of the point of why people go to college. And to take an 18-year-old and put them into the work environment right away. It's possible, but are they mature enough? Do they have all the skills to actually succeed and advance in that workplace? And is Google figuring that out as part of their long-term training program? Because for me, it looks like when you put an 18-year-old into the NBA without skipping college, sometimes they make it, LeBron, sometimes they don't, right? And like that's the... That's the challenge Google, I think, is going to face with this. It's a great example. You had me at MBA, too. <laughs> yeah, Cause, cause those, those programs got a lot better over time. And it goes yeah. it reminds me of, Terry, your, your previous point about a lot, of universe, a lot of faculty at the university level weren't really well-versed in instructional design. They weren't mm-hmm. necessarily ready to deal with some of the, the race work that is involved in teaching in the 21st century. Yep. And who's well-positioned to develop people in that way. In some ways, that's why the, the Center for yeah. Higher Ed Education Leaders, why you're doing what you're doing. Yep. So, so I think it's a sharp point, but, but I think it's a good added support for that point that even a big organization like Google has the resources to hire in the talent who could do that type of stuff, but it still begs the question of how do you develop the talent, develop those new skills that aren't really built into getting a graduate degree, but <laughs> getting a doctorate are they teaching you how to deal with issues of race or public health no. or, or any of that? Or stuff? even how to teach. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't learn how to teach when I was a, a grad student at UCLA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so we could go on clearly at length. This is a wonderful conversation, but, but maybe just some parting thoughts, Terry, as, as we're wrapping up. Well, I encourage people to come and check us out. We're going through a rebranding. We're, we're, we're still going to be the Center for Higher Education Leadership, but we're going to be calling ourselves Brighter Higher Ed. Okay. And the reason for that is 
I'm getting tired of all the pundits out there who are saying higher ed is dying and right. going away. It's, yeah. it's not people. That's oh. why we see a brighter yeah. future for higher education. Nice. Nice. And we're going to be having some fantastic workshops on radical empathy, some really in-depth ones, six-month deal where we would love to get some institutions to come in with their groups and and do this six-month program. We're also going to be doing some one-off two-hour workshops for those mm -hmm. who just want to dip their toe in. Yep. But come and check it out because our mission is to save higher ed, to improve yep. higher ed. And I would just say, let's take advantage of the situation and really try to be innovative and create change and help students. Let's ease the burden on our students and faculty and give them what they need to be successful. Yeah, fantastic stuff. Dr. Terry Givens, Brighter Higher Ed, the Center for Higher Education Leadership. Always a pleasure to have you on. There may be a refrigerator magnet in your future. We, <laughs> we may be hearing from you again. And uh, Melissa Griffith, uh, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, for our listeners, we'll be back again soon. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend, share us, like us, love us, keep listening to us. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. Thank you.